Well, if you'd open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. It's one of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. It's usually easy for me to find one of the majors, and then I just keep going, and then I'll find Daniel. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 3. So, of course, one of the themes that uh, has been impressed on me is that the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of Satan, has always opposed the kingdom of Christ, always. It's not new. We must never, ever forget, dear saints, that our God reigns. Our God reigns. He always has. He always will. This is the theme of the book of, of Revelation. Over and over, the kingdom of the world is opposed to the kingdom of Christ. It's been this way since the beginning of the scriptures. You see Satan opposed to God from the very moment, almost, of creation. And yet our Redeemer has always been the hero. In Genesis 3.15, he was promised, and then he came, and he's coming again. This is the story. This is the facts of history and the facts of the future. And yet the enemy of God's people, Satan, will continue attacking and opposing the people of God until God decides to bring us home. But in the meantime, we're called to live our lives on the earth, not hiding in caves, not living in monasteries, not hunkering down at Meadow Creek, living our lives. To what end? To what purpose? To glorify God. To glorify God. He's in charge. He has Perfect attention. He's not missing a thing. And yet, real hardship or persecution could come because of our faith. It could someday. We live in a little bubble of history where we actually have freedom. This is not traditionally, historically, what the church has, has seen. And yet, we in America... We have freedom and liberty to worship. But what if hardship or persecution comes? What are we prepared to do? Who do we trust? Who will we worship? Who will you worship? That's the title. This is uh, Daniel chapter 3. This is a wonderful text. And I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's a long one. And it's familiar but it is it's very good. Hear God's holy and inspired word for you. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, 
that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was so urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace and declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, prefects, and the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, 
and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we know that the God that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego served is the same God that we serve. We pray that you would give us the same faith and constancy in life as you gave them and encourage us through the preaching of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before, I was just thinking about the the series. It's strange for me to say sermon series because I don't do this often. I don't know if I ever have. Maybe I have once. But the sermon series, thinking about living in a dangerous world and how we often feel differently on different days based on what's happening. There are certain things that remain true no matter what. Satan hates us and God loves us. Everything else seems uncertain sometimes. For two years, I wasn't flying airplanes in the Air Force. I was actually a tactical air control party leader. I was part of attack P, and we did what was called CAS. It's close air support. We were embedded in Army units, and we went out with the Army units. We were the only Air Force people in these units. And when the commander said, hey, we really could use some air power right now, they found the Air Force guys and said, we need this thing blown up. We need this enemy killed. And we would get on the radio, and we would talk to the airplanes. It's called calling casts. We would call in close air supports. Nowadays, with all the electronic gizmos they have, they can kind of do over-the-horizon close air support. They send a UAV over the hill. They're kind of down on the other side of the mountain, and they can see what's over there. They can mark it, get a position, And they can do casts for targets they don't even see. It's an over-the-horizon kind of target, an over-the-horizon enemy. Maybe they don't call it casts, but that's really what it is. But the majority of casts was within visual range. You would get up on on a high spot, and you would try to see as much of the enemy as you could, and maybe a mile or two miles away from the front edge of your own line, you would try to take care of certain specific targets that you saw with your eyeballs and talking the airplanes down into the right spots. Sometimes it would get really close, though. The enemy is coming closer and closer, and there were kind of trigger marks. And if it was the enemy is almost on top of us, there's a term called danger close. And this meant you needed special approval to have any bombs drop danger close because it was too close for... um, the, the skill of the pilot and the bombs, frag pattern, and all that was too close to the friendly lines. 
So you need special permission to drop danger close. But often, when you needed bombs drop danger close, you needed them drop danger close. They're almost here. They're right in front of us, and there's a bunch of them. And then, there's another brevity term called broken arrow. This is real. I don't know if they still use it, but broken arrow meant we're already overrun. People are in our position. And broken arrow means send every plane you got. If it's American and it's flying, send it. Well, I mention this because sometimes we feel like it's broken arrow. We feel like we're overrun as a church. We're praying, God, if you got something, send it. The reality is it's probably mostly over the horizon for us anyway in America. It's, it's the kind of target that we don't really see yet. We see it in other countries maybe. We see it in other places. We certainly see it in history. But the reality is we still feel the attacks of the enemy. and We still feel that there's danger, and it could soon be danger close. What if our, our financial system collapses and society falls into poverty and People start losing their jobs and their houses because they can't pay mortgages or rent. What happens then? That would be terrible. How tempted we would all be to be anxious. And yet, what are we to do? We're to do what Christ said. To live each day. Live each day with courage, godliness, to be confident in our prayers that our God is with us. Well, I want to just leave that with you as context. When you think of the situation that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in at this time, of course, this text is not about us. It's about them. But we can learn wonderful lessons. It is real narrative. It's real history. It really happened. But these Hebrew slaves who worked for this Babylonian king Their situation, their risk, their decisions, their faithfulness, God's faithfulness, certainly provides some clear application for our own lives. It's often said that narrative is not normative. This is true, but it's certainly instructive. It's not normative as in this, you don't read about Jericho and Israel marching around Jericho seven times and apply that in your life to go march around a house you want to buy seven times. It's not normative like that, of course. But it certainly has application, and this is no exception. This text is wonderful with application. And if there ever was a real broken arrow, a real being overrun, they had experienced it. Israel was overrun. They were occupied. These people had been exiled from their homes. They were conquered people living under a pagan king. More than that, they were slaves of this pagan king, probably eunuchs of this pagan king, and yet they served him faithfully. They served God faithfully. They lived every day, quorum Deo, before the face of God. They're in positions of leadership even. So when they saw this law... Can you imagine a law that came out similar here? You may not worship in any church unless you worship this 
image that we'll send to every church building. Oh, my. And if you don't worship the image, then you'll be killed. How would they have felt? Had God forgotten them? Was the world really spinning that out of control? Was the kingdom of Satan winning? Was the church losing? The answer is no, of course. We serve the living God, the creator of the ends of the earth. And the church of God was beset at that time, but always persevered and was preserved by God himself for his glory. God sets up kings and brings them down. Nothing ultimately had changed. Satan hated God's people still, and God loves his people still. And this produced in them courageous and godly living. It should produce in us the same. Let's look at the text. Look at verse 4. I want to show you three things from this. First, let's look at the, the wicked law that was set up. The herald proclaimed, You're commanded, O peoples and nations and languages, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, and bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. I think, just as a textual note, bagpipe, there had to be a Scotsman in the translating team because how could there be bagpipes there? I don't know. But there must have been a Scotsman translating, and he's like, I don't know what this is, but let's say bagpipe. That'll work. The point is, everything they've got to worship musically, they're bringing it. They're bringing all their instruments. This is the time to come and worship. And whoever does not fall down in worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. That phrase, burning, fiery furnace, is listed over and over and over again to tell us that this is a real threat. This isn't just a story. This is real. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world. He had conquered the entire known world. This is undisputed historically. And he was probably never challenged in anything he said. He was the king of kings on earth. His authority was absolute. So he builds this immense statue of gold. Interesting, since he just had a dream a few years before that about a statue with a head of gold. But he builds this immense statue of gold probably as a tribute to some local Babylonian deity, but certainly more as a tribute to himself. It was 100 feet tall about and about 10 feet wide. I'm trying to imagine and help, help you understand how big this thing is. If you take a semi-truck and just turn it on end, and you take another semi-truck and put it on top of the first one, that's about 100 feet tall. Big. This is a big gold thing. And 10 feet wide. It's big enough that thousands and thousands of people could see it on this plain of Dura. They had to worship it. The decree was clear. When the music plays, fall down and worship. So that's the the decree. But who was there? Verse 2 tells us who was there. Everyone in leadership. Again, these phrases are thrown together with satraps and prefects and governors and counselors and treasurers. There's no wasted words. He's saying all of this to say everyone's there. If you're important at all, you're there. 
This is paradigm shift in a day. It doesn't, you know, in American business, they say, if you want a paradigm change, if you want a culture change, it's going to take five to seven years. Have you guys heard that? This is culture change in a second. You're all going to worship this thing. Everyone in leadership, all of the government is represented. Every nation, tribe, and tongue, it said, will worship this image. And the law is clear. Worship it, live. Don't worship it, die. Revelation shows this conflict will continue to the very end. In various forms and diverse worldly idols, maybe not a physical image, but the system of the world, the world's gods, will be worshipped. And listen to the language of Revelation 13. It's very similar to what we just read. Also, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell in the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. So who doesn't worship the image of the beast? The saints. That's it. Everyone else worships worships the beast. You see this all through Revelation. Interesting, too, that the beast is referred to in Revelation as Babylon the Great. So Babylon the Great is pitted against those who worship the Almighty God in heaven. I believe we need to see that the command to worship the golden image continues to be proclaimed today and has been proclaimed in every age. We are not yet threatened with death here where we live, but the decree of the king of Babylon still resounds in various ways throughout the world. In his book, Losing Our Virtue, David Wells describes worldliness this way. Worldliness is important because the system of the world, the God of this age, the God of this world, his his doctrine is worldliness. That's it. So what is worldliness? It's that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and His truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. This has happened in every age, but we're certainly seeing it now in our country. We're seeing it around the world. We're commanded and coerced to worship the God of this age in so many ways. It would seem to make sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. This is happening before our very eyes. Think of all the things that 30, 40, 50 years ago, even five years ago, would be absolutely repulsive sinful and viewed by most of society that way, which today is normalized and accepted. What was once repugnant is now celebrated. Normalization of homosexuality, transgenderism, of government coercion, it's celebrated. Pedophilia, 
Racism disguised as anti-racism. Fascism disguised as anti-fascism. Stealing is celebrated. Looting is celebrated. Destruction and violence. Every commandment you can imagine, all ten of them, breaking them is celebrated. And to speak up against these things is to face the rebuke of culture. To ask questions you're not allowed to ask is to face the rebuke of culture. Asking questions just proves you need to be punished. Christians have always been commanded not to bow to the God of this age. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't the first and wouldn't be the last commanding allegiance to his God. Alexander the Great, the Greek kings, commanded allegiance. Nero and all the Roman emperors commanded allegiance. When the Muslims conquered parts of Europe, they commanded allegiance. The Mongols, when they invaded Europe. The Roman Catholics commanded allegiance. Protestants were killed. The Scottish Covenanters were killed because they would not pay allegiance to the English king. And hundreds of other examples all over the world. This is just a small sampling. Satan is always the same, hating and attacking the church. Our God is always the same, loving and preserving the church. The enemy hasn't changed, but our God has not changed either. So when you see Nebuchadnezzar in his decree, in the context of all of human history, you see that's just one more domino in the domino of Satan's attacks. True Christians have always responded the same way to commands to worship the God of this age. What is that response when you're commanded to worship any other God? No. That's our response. We just say, no, we will not. So these three men broke the law. They broke Nebuchadnezzar's evil law. There are certain Jews, verse 12, whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods, worship the golden image that you have set up. Think about these three men being brought to Babylon. Our sovereign God and his good providence had put these three men in Babylon and then brought them into leadership. They were godly Hebrew men, part of the remnant saved from destruction in Jerusalem. They were given new names by the king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not their Hebrew names. These are their their Babylonian names and they glorify the Babylonian gods. And yet, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the names that are used throughout this narrative over and over again. Such was the all-encompassing subjugation of the Jewish people and of these men. So the Chaldeans were jealous of these guys, and they accused them. These men pay no attention to you. They will not bow to your God. This was true. But think about this. How did the facts become known? Well, it became known because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went to the place of worship and then did not bow. They stood up. We're not told why Daniel isn't there. God had preserved him from this trial for some reason that we don't know. 
But how come these three men were there? Couldn't they have feigned illness and skipped the event? Couldn't they have pretended to, you know, when everyone else, when the music starts playing and everyone bows down, it just kind of, my, my sandals come undone. Just kind of kneel a little bit. Couldn't you get out of it some way? And pretended to drop something at the appropriate time? Couldn't they have actually bowed down and worshipped, but actually been worshipping Jesus in their hearts, even though it looks like they're bowing down to the idol? Maybe some of these thoughts went through their heads, but a true believer will never bow down to another god, figuratively or actually. These three men could have avoided the situation, humanly speaking, by any number of reasons, but they chose to attend the event and they chose to stand up and not bow. They chose to be seen not worshiping the image. Now, the lesson I think we take from this particular act is not that we need to be conspicuous in every way. We need to stand out as much as possible as Christians. We need to find every law that might break uh, God's command in some way and then stand up and oppose it. I don't think that's the takeaway at all. But what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and later to Daniel was that the king made a law that struck at the vitals of their religion, the first and second commandments. And they said, no, no, we will not do something so clearly prohibited. It would certainly dishonor their God and their Savior. They had time to think about it. They're living their lives before the face of God every day. And they said, no. We also should consider the kinds of decisions that we make very prayerfully. God will give you the wisdom you need to oppose these images of gold as they come up in our own lives. He'll help you live courageously and godly lives before the face of God every day. But remember, it's not even that it's only the big things that are so important. God will ask you to make small stands of truth and morality throughout your day, throughout your life. Remember, these same men with Daniel had refused to eat the king's food. It was a small thing, a small thing. They were risking a lot, and they still did it. So it's not just the big things. We need to prayerfully consider everything that opposes our God and makes righteousness seem evil and evil seem good. But when you do this, if God leads you into some place of public disobedience, you need to be ready because the fury of the enemy is coming. And we see this in verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar was furious. He was furious, a furious rage. And he brought them and said, if this is true, you're going to go into the furnace. This is the response of godless leaders to Christians, period. Because why? Because they're faced with a higher authority. You serve something higher than the president. You serve something higher than a governor, than a mayor. You serve Almighty God. 
He despises these men already, probably because they're Hebrews, they're slaves, they're a conquered people, a disgraced people whose God had been defeated in his mind. So he gives them a last opportunity to recant. And he says, and what God will deliver you out of my hands? This is always the attitude of worldly pagan leaders. They think they really have everything in their hands. But this informs their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to the king in verse 16, We have no need to answer you in this matter. That's another way of saying, our, our minds are made up. You're not going to change us. This is a done deal. We will never bow to this image. The image is not our God. They had complete faith in the superiority of God. This is why knowing the God of this, of this book, knowing the God of the Scriptures for us, is critically important for each of us to stand. And after having done everything else to stand, we have to know the God whom we serve. Because we know once we see it in the Scriptures that it's true. And what do the Scriptures tell us? He's Almighty. He's the King. He's the Creator. God is the only God. They knew even in death they would be rewarded. They would be with their Father in heaven. They knew God was sovereign. He would reward them for their faithfulness. And their primary job in life wasn't to save their lives. It was to glorify God. They wanted the the praise of God more than the praise of man. Calvin said, God's glory ought to be more precious to us than a hundred lives. Who knows what they felt in this moment? They might have still felt deserted by God. These were real men. I like reading uh, the accounts of Latimer and Cranmer and Ridley before they died because you see their humanity. Hugh Latimer was about 70 when he went to the stake. He was a former bishop of Worcester a chaplain in London and Edward VI's court. Ridley uh, was in his early 50s, had been Bishop of London. And they were cast down by the mounting defections in the Protestant ranks. The prisoners were waiting in the Tower of London to see what would happen. And John Rogers, the very first pastor, who would not bow the knee to Baal, he was burned and they praised God. They praised God that the faithful were standing up. And then it was their time, and Latimer and Ridley were led to the stake to be burned together, the 70-year-old and the 50-year-old. And the old man said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. Why do I read this? Because they had an eternal perspective to anything that happened to them on the earth. They might die today, but who knows what God's doing in this country because of that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego may have had that thought. They may not have. But either way, they were not going to bow the knee. They said, no, we will not, no. So Nebuchadnezzar gets furious. Satan is furious when we don't bow to his gods. 
threw these men into the fiery furnace. And God rescued them. For the majority of us, the stakes are not quite that high. None of us are going to be killed yet. We may never have to face anything like this. We may always be the land of the free and the home of the brave. For us, though, the stakes are less than death, but we still have the same temptation. Are we going to stand up against the false gods of culture? If we do, you might be fired from your job. You might not get promoted. You might get a bad credit rating, or you might lose your friends or family. Your children might not be able to go to school where they wanted to go. You might lose your house. Or more close to home, you might not watch a certain television program because you know it exalts the gods of this age, or certain movies, or listen to certain music, or participate in certain social media. And don't be tempted to say, well, when it gets really serious, then I'll get serious. But this little stuff doesn't matter. No, it's, it's in the little things as well. He works his way into your home and into your life by degrees. So as the king's man, as the king's woman, how will you live? Will you find an excuse to outwardly blend and avoid the conflict? Certainly, if it's a case of entrapment or something stupid, be wise. Like Paul before the Sanhedrin. He knew they were just out to get him. They just wanted to get him and kill him. And he says, I'm on trial because I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. And I have hope of the resurrection of the dead. Like, he's wise. He knew that this was a setup. But if the conflict seems unavoidable and God calls on you in this moment, whatever it is to stand, what will you do? Well, the answer is clear. You're going to confidently pray that God is with you. You're going to live courageously in your daily life and godly in your daily life by the power of the Holy Spirit informed by the Word of God. And God will give you the wisdom you need when you need it. Probably not before that, but when you need it. And if He asks you to do something hard, He'll give you the courage to follow through. When Nebuchadnezzar looked in, he saw... The fourth one, like the son of the gods. God's answer was amazing. The lesson isn't that God always keeps us from pain. He always keeps us and rescues us from physical harm. That's not the application. The application is that Christ is always with us. He's always with us. Whether we're in the fire or not. So brothers and sisters, when the the news tells you to be anxious, when you read articles on whatever that tell you, oh, you better watch out, the end is here. Just stop and pause and consider, God is still God. Don't be anxious. Don't panic. Have you not known and have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He won't grow tired or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. What is our response to every day of life in a broken and fallen and hostile world? It's faithful prayer and courageous godly living every day. This is how we glorify God. We seek His face. We strive to see the face of Jesus Christ, to live before the face of God. Don't bow down and worship the new image, whatever 
you think this image is. Wokeness is quickly becoming the new cultural idol. Everyone is going to have to bow down and worship, or there will be consequences, maybe not death. But the conformity is demanded. It's just one example. Will you bow down and worship this new image? Are you going to trust God? Satan hasn't changed, but what's better, God has not changed either. The God-man who was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire furnace is with you. The Lord is the everlasting God. He will never leave you or forsake you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you've given us the examples of so many men and so many different times of history and women who have struggled through life, been tempted and afflicted with various trials and tribulations. Because we can learn that we can be faithful as they were faithful by your Spirit. You are with your people. Your promises are true. Your word is sound. It will not change. And we, your people, will trust you. Though all the earth would shake, though the foundations of the earth would tremble, and everyone in our neighborhoods, all of our friends and family, are shaking in their boots. We can have comfort and peace and not be anxious, but trust our Heavenly Father to guide and direct and protect and to provide for His own people, to preserve us from the hand of the enemy. Please give us confidence and encouragement, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.